0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled Hearts on Pilgrimage and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday August 27th 2006. Sometime during my high school years my father stopped attending church. He never explained why and I never asked. To make matters worse Since my mother never drove, every Sunday my dad still dropped us off and picked us up at our small-town Presbyterian Church in North Carolina. I still remember how awkward that felt as a teenager, seeing Dad waiting at the curb for us in his car, seeing and being seen by our neighbors with whom he used to worship. Those of us submerged in our Christian subcultures, Bible studies, weekly liturgy, denominational meetings, mission projects, youth groups, summer camps, Christian secondary schools and Christian colleges. We might raise our eyebrows about spiritual dropouts, but this could reflect more about us than about them. In our enthusiasm to commend the gospel, we sometimes soften its hard edges. We domesticate its subversive message and minimize its mystery. Not to mention, we repress uncomfortable questions. In his book called What Jesus Meant, Gary Wills writes that Jesus is, quote, always more outrageous and more egregious than we ever expect. Even if scholars found the so-called true and original Jesus behind the Bible text, says Wills, he would appear to us as more incomprehensible rather than less incomprehensible. John's Gospel for this week provides a case in point. After recounting Jesus' ignatic promise that, quote, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, end quote, John includes a detail that lends authenticity to his ca- account. We read in John chapter six, fifty-six to 59, Jesus said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. It's as if he couldn't forget the memory of the offense that Jesus provoked that day. In a candid protest to Jesus' strange discourse, some of his disciples those who were closest to his purpose and mission complained, This is a hard saying. Who can accept it? Maybe they knew exactly what Jesus meant and took offense. Or perhaps they were clueless as to what he meant. Either way, those who were scandalized at the message then cashed in their chips. We read in John chapter 6, verse 66, From this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Quitting the journey with Jesus is always a distinct option. The hard sayings of the enigmatic Jesus are only one reason why some people quit the faith. I suspect that my father lost faith in the church as an institution. Others quit or never start in the first place because prominent conservatives like Pat Robertson contort the gospel into a Republican agenda, or radical liberals like the retired Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong drain the good news of almost any specificity. Still others leave church because of boredom, legalistic pettiness, superficial platitudes, unanswered prayers, bitter disappointments, intellectual doubts, nagging questions, or life traumas that, in the words of the psalmist in Psalm thirty-four eighteen, crush the spirit. In his emotionally volatile poem, entitled The Collar, the pastor and poet George Herbert considered quitting faith in the ministry altogether. Born to wealth and to privilege, Herbert forsook a faculty post at Cambridge University in public service as a member of Parliament, and in 1629 became the rector at Bemerton, a small village near Salisbury. There he spent the rest of his short life as a country cleric. A month before his 40th birthday, he died of tuberculosis. The title of Herbert's poem, The Collar, evokes the stiff clerical collar that he must have worn. In the poem, he complains that it fairly well is choking the life out of him. He begins his tirade by pounding the church altar on which he would have served the Eucharist and screaming what many a pastor has and believer has felt but dared not to express, No more, I quit. Listen to George Herbert's poem, The Collar. I struck the board and cried, No more, I will abroad. What, shall I ever sigh and pine? My lines and life are free, Free as the road, Loose as the wind, As large as store. Shall I still be in suit? Have I no harvest but a thorn To let me bleed and not restore What I have lost with cordial fruit? Sure, there was wine before my sighs did dry it. There was corn before my tears did drown it. Is the year only lost to me? Have I no bays to crown it? No flowers, no garlands gay? All blasted, all wasted? Not so, my heart, but there is fruit, and thou hast hands. Recover all thy side-blown age on double pleasures. Leave thy cold dispute of what is fit and not. Forsake thy cage, thy rope of sands, which petty thoughts have made, and made to thee good cable, to enforce and draw and be thy law, while thou didst wink and wouldst not see. Away, take heed, I will abroad. Call in thy death's head, there, tie up thy fears; he that forbears to suit and serve his need deserves his load. But as I raved and grew more fierce and wild at every word, methoughts I heard one calling, Child, and I replied, My lord.' Herbert's poem is full of images of constraint against which he rebels, his clerical collar, cables, a cage, ropes, laws, and his stuffy suit. He chafes at the conformity imposed upon him, and dreams about a life free as the road, loose as the wind, as large as store. Why not flee? He grouses that his only reward for ministerial service is a harvest of thorns, and wonders whether he has wasted his years. Did he miss out on life and ambition? He regrets the pleasures and privileges that he forfeited. Perhaps he should have never left Cambridge and London for Bemerton. In the end, though, Herbert comes full circle. He concludes that the real ropes Cage and cables that bind him are not the gospel or ministerial service, but what he calls his own petty thoughts. In fact, the more fierce and wild he raved, the more in his heart of hearts he heard one calling his name child. And the poem then ends with a robust recommitment of faith to him whom Herbert calls my Lord." Some interpreters detect a note of self-pity in Herbert's poem, or even deliberate exaggeration for rhetorical effect. I read his poem at face value as a refreshingly candid expression of the deeply human questions that normal people ask on the journey with Jesus. Authentic spirituality includes rather than excludes whatever is bothering you most in his interior dialogue with himself i imagine herbert weighing the words of jesus from the gospel of john for this week in john chapter 6 verse 67 do you want to leave too we need not solve every problem or answer every question to stay the faith we can let the hard sayings of Jesus stand without softening them, or perhaps without even understanding them. Trusting in God's providential call upon our lives, we can follow Herbert's advice to leave thy cold dispute of what is fit and not. And finally, the two psalmists for this week remind us that God is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And that what we need most of all is to do what the psalmist in Psalm 84, verse 5 says, to keep our hearts on pilgrimage. And now for further reflection. What keeps you from faith or from the faith? In your experience, why do people quit the faith or never start in the first place? Consider Joshua 24, verse 15. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Contemplate the words of Peter in John chapter 6, verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And finally, for further reflection, see the two books by Philip Yancey. First, Church, Why Bother? from 1998, and then, Soul Survivor, How My Faith Survived the Church, from the year 2001. Or thirdly, the book by Gary Wills, entitled, Why I Am a Catholic, from the year 2002. For books this week, I review the book by Tim Flannery called, The Weather Makers, How Man is Changing the Climate, and what it means for life on Earth. New York, Atlantic Monthly Press, 2005, 357 pages. Sometime this century, writes the Australian scientist Tim Flannery, the day will arrive when the human influence on the climate will overwhelm all natural factors. Our best scientific evidence, he argues, indicates that humans must reduce their CO2 emissions by 70% by the year 2050 in order to stabilize the current levels of atmospheric CO2 at double their pre-industrial stage. In that year 2050, by the way, our world population will stand at 9 billion people. By comparison, the signatories of the Kyoto Protocol committed themselves to reductions of a mere 5.2%. And of course, the United States was, only, was one of only four countries not to sign the Kyoto Agreement. The others were Australia, Monaco, and Liechtenstein. For people like George W. Bush, who say they want, quote unquote, more certainty about climate change, Tim Flannery's thorough review of the history and science of global warming establishes the nature and dimensions of the problem beyond any reasonable doubt. Melting glaciers, species migrations and extinction, and increased greenhouse gases are only a few of the barometers that measure the crisis. Of the 30 or so greenhouse gases in our atmosphere, many of which exist only in trace amounts, CO2 is by far the most abundant, in the cause of about 80% of all global warming. Burning the fossil fuels, coal and oil, and to a lesser extent gas, releases the CO2 into our atmosphere, which then traps heat near the Earth, warms the world, and alters the climate. Flannery is passionate about his subject but he never pretends that we have easy alternatives. He shows how and why controversies rage on due to the multidisciplinary nature of the subject that makes it complex. Competing special interest groups, industry lobbies, corporate profits, and lack of political will. At the end of the book, he places the responsibility squarely upon private citizens who, he believes, can take the fate of the Earth into their own hands by making wise choices. Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, argued a simple and sobering fact of history, that even advanced civilizations vanished because of environmental distress. Al Gore's film and book, An Inconvenient Truth, and the Blue Ribbon Study entitled Ecosystems and Human Well-Being are two other studies of the conclusive evidence. Flannery's book, The Weather Makers, takes its place with them as one more clarion call to what might be the ultimate pro-life issue, the human degradation of planet Earth. For film this week, I review The Three Burials of Melchiatus Estrada from the year 2005. In this, his debut as a director, Tommy Lee Jones plays Pete Perkins, a grizzled cattle rancher on the Texas-Mexico border. Pete befriends and bonds with an illegal immigrant named Melchiatus Estrada, whom he hired as a ranch hand. He also promised to bury Melchiatus back in his hometown if he happened to die north of the border. In a freak accident, a rookie Border Patrol agent named Mike Norton murders Melchiatus, who had fired in his direction at a coyote. Pete knows that the redneck immigration authorities will do nothing, so in an act of vigilante justice, he exhumes Melchiatus, forces Norton to carry his body across the most lonesome, isolated, hostile territory you can imagine, and eventually give him a proper burial. In the end, Norton asks forgiveness for killing Melchiatus, and so disproves his wife Luann's judgment that he's a son of a bitch beyond redemption. Melchiatus, of course, also reminds us of all the many obscure, insignificant people whose fates are forgotten by the world, but not by someone as loyal as Tommy Lee Jones. The Three Burials of Melchiatus Estrada was written by screenwriter Guillermo Arriaga, who also did Amores Peros in 21 Grams. For poetry this week, we've posted a poem entitled Invictus by Charles Munger, Jr. I drop the burden I cannot carry. I bend my knee when I cannot stand. I pray to God when I must cry out. I believe because I must. So many lives of toil and darkness, poor wronged who died wrong, their stories lost, their names forgotten, I believe because I must. As for me, what have I not done? So many my crimes and wasted years. Is there hope for even such as I? I believe because I must. Some speak of God Almighty as they would a familiar friend. Not for me, their simple story. I believe because I must. As I die, I will surely wonder if my whole life was lived for naught. Who will bear me across that river? I believe because I must. Over Jordan, the holy city, the light of God, the sound of trumps, do I hear the angels singing welcome? I believe because I must. Invictus by Charles Munger Jr. Thank you for joining JourneyWithJesus.net for Sunday, August 27th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.